Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker. I am the host and creator of the Bible in Life. And my whole goal behind it, my heart behind the Bible in Life is to provide what I like to call blue jeans theology. And what I mean by that is Bible teaching that is clear and easy to understand in the language of everyday life, that it's rooted in the context and the questions of everyday life so that you and I can follow Jesus more fully and more faithfully in the midst of our everyday life. So that's what we're about. And so I'm really grateful that you're joining me on this episode. If you uh, tuned in last week, uh, you know that we began kind of just wrestling with some things I myself am thinking through and uh, articulating in maybe some new ways for the sake of a book that I'm co-authoring with a friend and I uh, just wanted to share some of my thoughts with you kind of live as I'm wrestling with them and thinking through the best way to articulate them and really looking for some feedback too on things that you find challenging or helpful or unclear or anything like that. So please feel free to share your thoughts with me if this material is useful to you in any way or helpful or encouraging or whatever it is. I would love to hear from you on all of that. And so last week we talked about the purpose of government. Do you know what the purpose of government is? from the perspective of the Bible, and that it has a very limited view of government, has a very small view of government, and the government is supposed to uh, praise what's good and right and punish what is unjust and wrong or bad. And that's what we talked about last week. This week, I want to really wrestle with a question and how the New Testament forces us to think about this question that I think is just terribly important for us. For those that live in my country, uh, coming into an election year, for you in whatever country you live in, the question is the same. I'm going to articulate it from my vantage point, um, but it's the same for wherever you live. Here's the question. Are you an American who happens to be a Christian, or are you a Christian who happens to live in America? In other words... What's your core identity that shapes your beliefs, your values, and your practices? Like, what, what really is it that shapes the driving culture of your family life and of the way you use your resources and of your mission and ambitions of your life, the character of your life? What is the core identity that shapes the beliefs, values, and practices of your life? In my case, and, and for those living in the United States, right, is being a citizen of the United States of America, is that your core identity? Or whatever country you live in, Canada, the UK, uh, South Africa, Australia, is it being a citizen of that country that really shapes your beliefs, values, and practices? Or is it your allegiance to King Jesus? And there was a long period of time in the United States of America and really in the, uh, the Western civilization in total where the values and the practices of, of the West overlapped significantly with the values of Christ's kingdom. They overlapped in large ways. And that meant that the, the direct and explicit challenges to our allegiance to King Jesus were fewer and farther between. And one of the unintended effects of that, it seems to me, was that that lulled us into thinking there was less urgency to think through what is the exact nature of our status as God's people in relation to the society we find ourselves in. Like, what, re what really is supposed to be our relationship there? What really is our place and our role in our country, in our community, uh, in a relationship to political engagement and all of that? So when it came to cultural and political engagement— we really hadn't clarified 
exactly how our deepest allegiance was supposed to play out and what our highest responsibilities were actually supposed to be. And so now that that overlap is shrinking and the direct challenges to the teaching of the Bible and to Christian faith are becoming more and more frequent and more and more pronounced, well, now we're kind of struggling with, okay, wait, wait, how does this work? And there's a sense of urgency. There's even some fear and some anxiety about all of that. And the fact is, is the early Christians did not have that luxury. Uh, they, the early church just kind of emerged in a world that was deeply different from and in a lot of ways opposed to the values and the beliefs and the practices of the church. And so they had to think this through right from the get-go. And so the New Testament documents are very helpful for us in seeing how they understood that and then for us to meditate on and reflect on and let that shape how we view ourselves. And one of the uh, documents that's really helpful is the letter of 1 Peter. In fact, in a lot of ways, and I've told this to a number of people over the last couple of years, that I feel like 1 Peter is a letter for our time. The Christians in the letter to 1 Peter, they, they weren't necessarily being uh, thrown into jail or there wasn't like being martyrdom and killing of them. There might have been some physical persecution, but for the most part, it was more social dislocation. They were being uh, ridiculed and ostracized. They were losing business opportunities. They were being removed from uh, some of the trade guilds and the business societies of their day. They were being mocked and laughed at. And so the hostility showed up more in that sort of thing. And that's the direction that at least my country and the West seems to be going at present. And Peter regularly communicated the idea that followers of Jesus were like foreigners in their own land, that there was an out-of-placeness, there was a cultural misfitness, if you will, because they are now part of God's kingdom in Christ, and thus their values and their beliefs are shaped by King Jesus. And so in many ways, they don't match up with the beliefs and the values of the very city or country in which they were living in. And the same is true today, that uh, many of the beliefs and values that we possess as followers of Jesus just don't line up or match up very well with the beliefs of our city, our country. And Peter uses two key words to express this concept. One word is, depending on the translation, sometimes translated sojourner, sometimes stranger. It's a word that focuses on staying for a, a while as a temporary resident in an unfamiliar or foreign kind of place, a strange sort of place, a place where you don't fully belong. It actually reflects the idea of exile, and that theme of exile is very important as sort of a background or backdrop for the letter of 1 Peter. Another word that Peter uses is the word foreigner, and this word overlaps in many ways with the previous word, but it emphasizes living in a place where the way of life is contrary to our own. So one emphasizes sort of the temporariness of, of life there, and the other emphasizes the foreignness of life there. And so it's like being a foreign resident in a place where you don't really feel at home and you don't really belong. And the fact that Christians our exiles and foreigners, wherever they live, means that our beliefs and our values and our practices have to be shaped more by the kingdom of God than by the culture around us. It reminds us that uh, Jesus's kingdom 
has to receive our deepest allegiance and his honor has to be our highest concern. It has to be that far above our national identity. It has to be that far above our concerns for the welfare of our nation state. Our deepest allegiance and our our biggest concern is Jesus' honor and his kingdom. Now, the way that plays out in 1 Peter is... Uh, Peter actually speaks of the followers of Jesus, particularly the middle section of the letter. Picking up in uh, chapter 2, Peter speaks of the identity of followers of Jesus in 1 Peter as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That, In other words, Christians living where they live are like a nation within a nation, and they're like a priesthood unto that nation. And that language, royal priesthood and holy nation, actually derives from God's description of the nation of Israel in Exodus 19. And it clearly designates the calling or the vocation that God intended for his people then, Israel, and for his people now, wherever they live, that their job is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that means we, as followers of Jesus, we Christians are a royal priesthood. What priests do is this. Priests represent people to God and they bring God to the people. That's how they work. They stand between and they are this mediator between God and people. So as exiles and foreigners living wherever we do, we stand between the God of heaven, the living God, and the world, and we represent God to the world and we bring the world to God. That's what our vocation is. Also, Peter calls us a holy nation. Well, what does that mean? Well, holiness communicates difference. The basic idea of the word holiness is to be different, set apart, other than. And so we're distinct in our way of life. Uh, Like I said, we're like a nation within a nation displaying the culture of God's kingdom to the world around us. Think about that. Our role, our calling is to be... um, like a city within a city displaying a different culture, a new culture, the culture of God's kingdom with his values and his virtues and his beliefs guiding and animating what we do. And Peter therefore goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2 to say that the goal of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is this. It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what we're supposed to be about. Like we are supposed to shine the light of God's excellencies, his majesty, his goodness, his love, his wisdom, his beauty to the world around us. How do we do that? Well, Peter's basic way of answering that in 1 Peter is by displaying a way of life that is excellent. He uses the Greek word kalos for it. It means excellent or beautiful or Good. That's the idea. Unfortunately, some translations just translate it as right, but right is not the the same idea. Uh, It's more beautifully good. And so in the community where we live, we're supposed to display a way of life that is beautifully good, that's excellent, that reflects the excellencies and beautiful goodness of God himself. In fact, when Peter writes that in 1 Peter chapter 2, immediately the first place he applies this, this principle of living beautifully good lives is to the well-known social institutions of his day. Specifically, the very first place is submitting to the civic authorities. 
So he talks about that. And that by doing good, he says, by doing good in our community, we're to help silence the talk of foolish people and to show uh, that really God's way of life is actually good for the world and good for society. He also applies it to working as a household servant. He applies it to marriage. And in every case in these well-known social institutions, Peter points out that displaying a beautiful, beautifully good way of life uh, and that by doing good in town, um, that even to the civic authorities who are foolish or the master of the house who is unjust, or even if you're married to an unbeliever, that all of that can help them, help draw them to God, and, and, or at least silence their foolish talk. And so that's, that's, for Peter, how we carry out our calling as kingdom of priests and a holy nation, by, by living a way of life that is distinct and different, that, that displays the beautiful character of God himself. The Apostle Paul uses different language and some different imagery, but he communicates a very similar idea that I think is very powerful and very formative for us. He really communicates the idea that we are like an outpost of heaven on earth. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul writes this, he's playing off of the well-known civic situation that the Philippian believers were living with. And they were very familiar with it. And so he plays off of that to, to say, like your situation in Philippi uh, in relationship to Rome, well, the same is true for the church. So let me explain the situation for the Philippians. Uh, because one of the climactic battles of the Roman Civil War had been fought on the plains outside of Philippi, the city had been given the highest honor by the Roman government. Uh, the city of Philippi was made a Roman colony, and actually given the status of Ius Italicum. That is, even though they were in Macedonia, northern Greece, they were given the honor of being like a little piece of Italy, a little piece of Rome there in northern Greece. That came with all sorts of rights and benefits and privileges. They didn't have to pay as many taxes. Um, they, you know, they had, they, they got to dress in Latin or Roman dress. They had special um, privileges with the emperor. And so here, the citizens of Philippi were like a little colony of Rome in northern Greece. And they were responsible to bring Roman culture and Roman civilization and Roman practices to that region of the world. That was the idea of colonialship in the Roman Empire. Well, Paul playing off of that says, you guys, you church there in Philippi, you're like a little colony of heaven in Philippi. And the point of that isn't that so you just start to hang out and huddle together and shelter down and hunker down until finally you can go back to heaven when you die. No, that's not that was never the point of being a Roman colony. And that's not the point then of what Paul means here. What he means is your job is to bring the the, the culture of heaven to earth. That's the idea. Uh, just as the the citizens of Rome there in Philippi were to bring the culture of Rome to northern Greece, well, now as a colony of heaven in Philippi, your job is to be an outpost of heaven and to bring the culture of heaven to earth. And that's what the church is in its community and in its country. It is an outpost of heaven. And so the way it operates and the way it interacts with people and the things it values and the things 
and, and not just what it values, but how it goes about implementing those values and communicating those values. All of that is supposed to uh, be representing the king of heaven well on earth. Now, let me just draw out a couple implications then for us as followers of Jesus in the world where we live today. And I'm going to speak in terms of my particular experience in America, United States of America, um, because we have this election coming up. Um, and so here's one implication to me from what Peter and Paul says. Uh, our expectations ought to be marked by a healthy realism. This is a fallen world. Our country is a fallen country. Our nation is a fallen nation. The, the rulers and the leaders in our nation are fallen people. Many of them have no allegiance to King Jesus, right? So that means our expectations have to be marked by healthy realism. And one of the things that means is we have to remember our Savior doesn't come from Washington, D.C. So we can pray and we can actually work for good policies to replace bad ones, but we must... We must not place our hopes in who's in office or a particular party or any of that. We don't place our hopes in that. Our hope is with Jesus. He's the king, and we're eagerly waiting for a savior to come from there. Another implication that's so important is that the values and the virtues that drive us at the voting booth ought to be shaped by and in sync with the culture of God's kingdom. When we vote, um, we have to vote in line with the beliefs and values and virtues of the culture of heaven. So the problem is we live in a fallen world and those are intermixed. You're going to get some values and virtues, you know, that are like, oh yeah, that really lines up with it. But then there's a whole bunch of other things that don't. And you're going to get some other ones with this, this candidate or this party where it's like some line up with it, some don't. And we're going to have to make some judgment calls, but it's got to be the values and the virtues of the kingdom of God that drive us, not our emotions, not our feelings, and not our preferences. Can't be that. It's, it's the kingdom of God. And then the final implication is that the manner in which we, quote-unquote, wage political wars, if you will, must not be according to the flesh. I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 10.3. We don't, we don't war according to the flesh. We don't operate that way. We don't use their strategies. We don't use their methods. We don't play by their rules, and we don't play their games. We don't wage political wars according to the flesh. But we, we wage political wars in line with the character of Christ. I'm thinking of things like uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'm thinking of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, where you know, gentleness and humility and patience and forgiving one another. It's those kinds of character traits that, that have to characterize the way we operate politically speaking. And so when we, when we engage uh, in the political system, when we engage in political conversations, when we go through an election year, the things we post on social media, the kind of uh, conversations we have and how we conduct ourselves, they have to be full of the Spirit of God and the character of Christ. Um, we have to, in those moments, display the beauty and the excellency of God's kingdom to the world around us and not get so caught up in the political culture wars that we drag the name of Jesus through the mud by the way we act. And unfortunately, we have often done that as followers of Jesus. And so my 
my hope, my appeal, even by reflecting on some of this with you and our hope and our appeal and putting together this book that my friend Daniel and I are working on is to say we can do better. We can do better. We can embody the kingdom of God both in what we value and in how we go about engaging with the political system. And so my encouragement to you as I reflect on this material this week is think of yourself as an exile and a foreigner. Think of yourself as a member of a, a city within a city whose job it is to display the beautiful goodness, the, the wonderful excellencies of God himself, both in what you value and how you go about valuing that and how you interact with people who don't share your beliefs, don't share your values, don't share your virtues. Conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of being a citizen of God's kingdom here in the community wherever you live. All right, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. Grateful that you could join me here. Bible and Life is made possible by the generous support of dozens and dozens of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And you can join the team of supporters by going to johnwhitaker.net, clicking the Give button. It'll redirect you to a page through World Family Mission where you can set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation. Thanks a ton for your support.